One time I did a retreat in somebody's house, a self-course. Um, they had left the house. And they had left in the bedroom that I was staying in a cartoon. The cartoon was from the comic strip Peanuts. And it featured <clears throat> those two characters, Lucy and Charlie Brown. At first, Lucy is saying to Charlie Brown, discouraged again, eh, Charlie Brown? You know what your trouble is? The whole trouble with you is that you're you. <laughs> Charlie says in response, well, what in the world can I do about it? And then Lucy responds to him, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the trouble. <laughs> so somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation, my eye would kind of stray to that cartoon. And there it was. The whole trouble with you is that you're you. <laughs> I wanted to talk tonight about the ability, the quality of finding trust in ourselves, finding a sense of faith in ourselves. Mostly, I think, in terms of our conditioning and our training, we tend to feel the whole trouble with us is that we're us, any one of us. And yet, we're taught that some, some feeling of confidence, um, of faith, of endeavor, of trust is fundamental to the practice. I can remember when I was first in Burma and first doing metta meditation, which was a very new practice for me, even though I had been doing vipassana practice for years. Then the very first day when Upandita called me into his room to give me the instructions, the first thing he said to me was, do you think you're going to succeed at doing this practice? And my heart sank. I thought, this is a trap. <laughs> he's looking for conceit, he's looking for arrogance, he's looking for pride. So I said to him, well, I don't know. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, you know. He looked at me and he just, sort of shook his head dolefully and he said, everything you should do, you should do knowing that you can succeed in it. This is the basis for your practice. This is the, the launching kind of confidence that we need in doing the practice. Everything you do, you should do knowing you can succeed in it. This isn't that dreaded state of arrogance or conceit or pride, but it's a very heartful courage it's the recognition of our innate abilities, and it's not personal. It's quite impersonal, it's universal, it's shared. It's the recognition of the truth of our basic nature. Certainly when we talk about having faith in ourselves or having confidence in ourselves, it doesn't mean that we are encouraging a state where you believe fully in all of the thoughts that pass through your mind. We tend to have a great identification with ourselves. We think that our thoughts are us. But just imagine, 
What if you were for a single hour in this hall to follow every impulse that came up in your mind? You would stand up, you would sit down, probably roll over, go to sleep, hit at least one or two people in this room, do a whole variety of other things. Already we have some common sense that we don't believe in all of our thoughts. Our thoughts, our impulses are conflicted. They're fragmented, they're flying all over the place. I thought of it today um, in terms of the balkanization of our own minds. They're just split up into these little pieces and they fight. So it doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean feeling that we should have been able to control a particular thought or pattern or feeling that comes up in our field of experience, because we can't. Once I asked Joseph, what was the absolutely worst thought he'd had in meditation practice? <laughs> and I've proceeded to tell hundreds of people. <laughs> what he told me. <laughs> and the reason that I, I've uh, done that is because it bore a remarkable resemblance to what I would consider my worst thought in meditation. Well, I asked him first and, and he said to me, well, he was here practicing once and he was doing walking meditation and this was many years ago. He was experiencing a very hard day, very hard period in his practice. And then he heard a plane fly overhead. So he had the thought, wouldn't that be great if that was a Russian bomber? And it, it dropped a bomb, and I didn't have to do this walking meditation anymore, and I could leave this place. And I said, remarkable, because my worst thought was something that happened when I was practicing in Burma. Really, just coincidentally, I was doing walking meditation and I was having a very difficult day. And Burma, as well as being this wonderful haven that has supported us so beautifully, many of us in our practice, is also a military dictatorship. It's a country of tremendous struggle and political oppression. So I was walking along and having a hard time and then I began thinking, you know, this is a country of great civil unrest. Wouldn't it be fantastic if there was a revolution? And, you know, there was just this, this upheaval. And I could just imagine myself being helicoptered out and never having to do that walking anymore. <laughs> I mean, this is what arises in the mind, or worse. All of the thoughts, all of the feelings, that come up arise due to a combination of conditions. They are insubstantial, they're impermanent, they're fleeting. They come and go not at our will and not at our whim. We cannot seem successfully to walk into this room and say, okay, I've suffered enough. No more grief, no more guilt, no more anger, no more tears. It doesn't work that way. It's not a question of this kind of determination. Things arise when conditions come together for them to arise. 
And in fact, knowing that is the basis for some kind of forgiveness. It is not in the content of these changing thoughts and feelings that we really find a refuge, that we find the kind of confidence or trust that will allow us to have courage in our practice, to have ardency in our practice, to cut through obstacles in our practice. What we really are talking about when we talk about having trust in ourselves are not these fleeting things. We're talking about having trust in the very nature of our own awareness, having trust in our inviolate capacity for love and compassion. We're talking about having trust in, in the depth and the power of a realization of suffering. We're talking about understanding the tremendous power of our own effort in seeing the truth. And we're talking about the power of our interconnectedness with all beings. So to begin with, the power of our own awareness and having trust in it. The teaching is founded upon the idea that how we relate to what is happening is all important. What will arise in the mind is outside of our control. How we relate to it is the turning point right in this moment of bondage or freedom. This is a, a quotation from the poet Emerson who's talking about life. He says, what is life but the angle of vision a person is measured by the angle at which they look at objects. We call it right view. The most important thing is our view, our understanding. We don't have to give in to an overwhelming anxiety. We don't have to have a defeatist attitude or, or tremendous depression when we have difficult challenges. We don't have to fall into apathy, we don't have to fall into hopelessness when our experience is difficult. Everything depends on how we are relating to what is arising in our experience. I was just reading a book that a friend of mine wrote which included some psychological studies on optimism and pessimism. And they make the distinction in these studies between optimists and pessimists in terms of how people explain to themselves their successes and failures. People who are so-called optimists tend to see a failure, a difficulty, a hardship as due to something that can be changed, some condition arising, which might have the possibility of being different the next time around. While a pessimist is the kind of person who will take the blame for the failure, who will ascribe it to some lasting characteristic within themselves that will never ever change, that is who they truly are, that they will be plagued by for the entire rest of their lives. And these differing 
explanations of the same situation are considered to be crucial in terms of how people respond to life. So for example, if someone is turned down when applying for a job, they say that an optimist won't necessarily assume that they're not getting the job was caused by some grievous fault within themselves that will never change. It's not the voice that says, I am a total failure and I always will be, but rather, to restate it in, in Dharmic language, a combination of conditions came together for this to happen. They're impermanent. If some of these conditions can be changed, then the result will be different. Our lives are all this coming together and then falling apart of all of these different conditioned elements. There's nothing that stands apart from this. There's nothing that stands alone. One time in India, I went to see a teacher and I had a nice time with the teacher and a certain kind of insight into the nature of things. And then the teacher said to me, well, now you'll never feel fear again. And I thought, right. It probably didn't take 10 minutes before something happened and I felt a great deal of fear. It's taken me quite some time to understand that the gift that he was offering me was not in terms of what would arise or not in my mind. If fear is arising in a tight, clenched, judgmental space, certainly it's quite overwhelming. If fear is arising in an open, vast, compassionate space, we may call it fear, but it will not break us. The Buddha very often used quite simple examples. In fact, sometimes they say that, I had read somewhere that every time the Buddha spoke, he spoke so simply even a seven-year-old could understand. And perhaps as a consequence of this in part, it said that he had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. So sometimes what I think we need to do is find that young child within us that can hear these very simple things without a tremendous amount of rationalization. So here's a simple example from the Buddha. He said that, and this is a paraphrase, um, if you take a teaspoonful of salt and you put it into a small glassful of water, because of the smallness, because it's just a narrow container of water, the water will be very powerfully impacted by the salt. It will become very abrasive. If you take that same teaspoonful of salt and you put it into a large pond full of fresh water, even if you take a truckload full of salt and you put it into that large pond of fresh water. The water is not going to be very strongly affected because of the immensity, the openness, the vastness 
of the vessel which is receiving it. Mostly in our lives, we become quite fixated on trying to do something about all of that salt. The irritants, the problems, the hardship, the difficulty. We say, it's too much. You know, I already had some yesterday. I don't want any more today. How come I have more than everybody else? But the problem is that, unfortunately, the salt is very often the thing we cannot do anything about. What we can do, definitely, is affect the size of what is going to be receiving it, what is receiving it. It can be small and tight and narrow, or it can be open and relaxed and accepting and kind. So when fear arises in a mind that is open, it's a very different kind of experience, even if the fear itself is the same thing. This is a quotation from Tibetan Lama Trungpa Rinpoche, who said, Acknowledging fear is not a cause for depression or discouragement. Because we possess such fear, we also are potentially entitled to experience fearlessness. True fearlessness is not the reduction of fear, but going beyond fear. We say going beyond, but what it more literally means in terms of the practice is cutting through it or seeing through it, seeing the transparency of it, seeing the ephemeral nature of it, seeing the insubstantiality of it, which we can do when the mind is really big, when the spaciousness of our hearts is really large. We experience this kind of awareness that is open, that's accepting, that is relating purely to what is happening moment by moment. And this is a crucial understanding. We experience it right here and now without any contrivance, without any predetermination. And we experience it moment by moment. One of the very simple examples that the Buddha used uh, that was hugely helpful for me in my own practice was the image that he used when he said that the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness, like metta, moment by moment, just the way that a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. This, in fact, is the only way that it happens, is moment by moment. Just like this bucket will only get filled drop by drop. I really like that example. I think because as soon as I heard it, I saw very clearly two powerful tendencies in my mind. One was to be standing by the bucket, lost in fantasy about how terribly exciting and wonderful it was going to be when it was filled, and not bothering to add the next drop, but just lost in the glories of my someday enlightenment. And the other tendency, which was very strong as well, was to stand by the bucket and to be in despair 
It's so empty. <laughs> There's so much more to go. It's hardly filled at all. And once again, not having the patience and the humility and the good sense just to be mindful in that moment, just to add one drop right now, it will definitely get filled drop by drop and it will only get filled drop by drop. The rest is imagination, one way or another. Our awareness manifests, it expresses itself, it can be found moment by moment and that's fantastic because in every single moment, regardless of what is happening, we can be mindful. There's something we can be doing right here and now. I want to say something in this regard about the force of comparison, which is rather common. To extend the image a little bit, it seems like we try a lot kind of look over into other people's buckets and see how well they're doing. You know, is it more filled, is it less filled, what's going on over there? But actually, we can't see those. That's not something that is ever visible to somebody else because what we see from the outside is someone else's either real or imagined experience but it's not through experiences that the bucket gets filled. The bucket gets filled by a moment of mindfulness, which is how somebody is relating to those experiences. What we see is some reification of either a real or very possibly an imagined state. And we compare and we suffer. It's interesting that when the Buddha talked about the quality of comparison, he said that it's a state of suffering regardless of the conclusion you draw about yourself having made that comparison. You might look at somebody and say, well, I'm better than they are. Or you might look at them and say, well, I'm not really as good as they are. Or you might look at them and say, well, we're about the same. And no matter what the conclusion is that you draw, The experience itself is a state of suffering because it's a state of tremendous restlessness. It's the kind of restlessness and agitation that will never come to an end by itself. But it's ceaseless unless we see through it, unless we cut through it, unless we see its insubstantial, impermanent and unsatisfactory nature. Just imagine coming into this room at the end of a walking period. You sit down and maybe, oh, ten minutes into the sitting, the person sitting on one side of you moves and you think, oh good. I'm really much better yogi than they are, you know. I may move after 15 or 20 minutes, but here they are, they moved after only 10, and you feel kind of good about that. And then you think, well, they were sitting here when I came in from the walking, so maybe they sat through the sitting and they sat through the entire walking, and only now they've moved. They sat for two and a half hours. (laughs) You know, I can't sit for two and a half hours. I'm not as good as they are. And you kind of 
position yourself mentally in terms of everyone sitting around you and kind of a wider scope into the rest of the room. And you, you feel pretty assured of where you stand in terms of being a good yogi or a bad yogi in terms of everybody already here. And somebody new shows up. You have to do it all over again. It will never come to an end unless we relinquish it, unless we step back from it. And what we are comparing is irrelevant anyway. It has nothing to do with a depth of spiritual understanding or compassion or mindfulness. It is only about experience. The Buddha once said something um, in this regard. He said that there are four kinds of meditators or four kinds of yogis. And this doesn't mean um, like a lifetime sentence, but one can fall, generally speaking, at a certain time into one of these four uh, categories or types, and that this might change. The first kind of meditator is somebody who is experiencing very pleasant sensations in the body. Nice, serene, flowing vibrations. And very serene, lovely, kind, lofty mind states. And they are progressing very quickly in the practice. Then there's a second type of meditator who is experiencing all of these nice things in the body and in the mind, all of this pleasure, and they are progressing very slowly. Then there's a yogi, a kind of yogi, who's experiencing a lot of difficulty, pain, heaviness, itching in the body, low energy, lots of hindrances, difficult states of mind, and they're progressing very quickly. And then there is a yogi who's experiencing all of that difficulty in the body and the mind, and they're progressing very slowly. Now often people hear this and they immediately consign themselves to that last category. <laughs> but that isn't necessarily true. And if it is true, it can change. Because the point of it is clearly that it doesn't matter what we are experiencing in terms of this gradation of pleasure and pain. This whole idea of progress or movement or growth or unfolding or opening in the practice rests completely on how we are relating to what is going on. The fact that what's going on is painful doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. And it doesn't mean that we have to do kind of remedial practice until the point when we can come back and have more pleasure. We can trust our own experience. And the most important aspect of it is the quality of awareness that we can bring to it. So this is the first of, of these facets or factors of mind that in fact we can trust. And the second is our capacity for love, for loving kindness. It's said that metta is based on seeing the good in somebody, including the good in ourselves. And it's also based on acknowledging 
the rightfulness, the appropriateness of our own wish to be happy. Because that urge toward happiness is like a little seed of awakening. And it's quite good. Again, this is from the Tibetan Lama Trungpa Rinpoche who said, when you live your life in accordance with basic goodness, then you develop natural elegance. Your life can be spacious and relaxed. Without having to be sloppy, you can actually let go of your depression and embarrassment about being a human being, and you can cheer up. When we teach metta, as you know, we begin with developing metta toward ourselves. And there is that quotation from the Buddha, which is quite amazing, when he said that you can search the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and you will not find that person anywhere. You yourself are more deserving of your own love and affection than anybody. That's amazing. We actually deserve that. I had a dream the other night in which I was doing an interview with a yogi. It wasn't like being on a vacation in the Bahamas or anything, but it was interesting. And the yogi asked me, why do we love people? And I responded by saying, because they recognize us. And I liked that when I woke up. I thought, that's true. You know, people somehow recognize something within us. A lovability, a sense of basic goodness. And that is, is often the most important thing to us. And we respond with great love and great gratitude for that. There's an ancient Chinese proverb which says, <clears throat> A bird does not sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song. And I believe that quite, quite truly about all of us, that we have a song. And part of that is this capacity for loving kindness, which is a capacity, regardless of our particular conditioning or history or background or traumas or withholdings, or fears, this is a capacity which is not destroyed, no matter what we have gone through. And we can find that, we can touch that, and we can nourish that. That is what metta practice is. In certain refuge practices in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, you start out by doing a visualization where the Buddha is in front of you and he's smiling at you. And that's a lovely feeling, actually, that the Buddha, in a way, is recognizing something within us through his offering of a path. And we are responding to that recognition with the power and the truth of our own efforts. We can have great faith 
as well in the power of our own efforts. Once I was sitting in Nepal with a Tibetan teacher and somebody was saying, you know, it's really hard hearing all of these stories about these people who lived in long ago times and, you know, somebody said boo and they got enlightened and, and then they flew off into space and, you know, it's just, it's too remarkable, it's too remote. I'll never get there. I have huge doubt about my own capacity in practice. And this teacher said in response, if you want confidence and faith, you need to rest it on diligence. Diligence will bring forth confidence because diligence will bring forth realization. It's all like being by that bucket and in this moment doing what you can and doing all you need to do. That diligence will yield everything. I had a teacher, we had a teacher, a woman named Deepama who manifested this kind of diligence in an extraordinary way. She had a very unusual life in terms of our culture and our perspective on things. She was put into an arranged marriage when she was 12 years old. Um, it was many years before she had any children, which was considered a great disgrace in the Indian society. She suffered hugely. At one point, um, she began bearing children. Two of her children died. And then after some years, her husband died. And she went into a state of enormous grief, just really brokenheartedness. And she couldn't sleep. She couldn't, on the other hand, get out of her bed. She was absolutely undone. And she still had a daughter to raise. And one day, a doctor said to her, you know, you're going to die unless you do something about your mind state. You should learn how to meditate. She had been married to a, an Indian man who was in the Burmese civil service. So she was living in Burma. And she went to a place to practice meditation. They say that she was so weak when she first went, she used to have to crawl up the temple stairs in order to get into the temple. And she was a fantastic yogi. When we met her, she was extremely accomplished, both in, in uh, awareness practice and in samadhi practice. She was a really great being. She gave a talk here once in this hall, and this is just a tiny little part of it. She said, when I started doing the meditation, I was crying all the time because I wanted to follow the instructions with full regard, but I couldn't do so because I only fell asleep. Even standing and walking, I fell asleep all of the time. I just needed to sleep. So I cried and cried that for five years I was trying to sleep and couldn't sleep. <laughs> then I was trying to do meditation and all I could do was sleep. 
I was trying really hard not to sleep, but still I couldn't do it. And then one day, all of a sudden, my sleep disappeared and I could sit. She was a very spunky lady. In fact, when you sat with her as a teacher, there were no naps allowed. <laughs> and she was a tremendous inspiration as to the power of clear motivation, strong motivation, and endeavor. Somebody once was talking to her. She was very, very, very small. Uh, I don't even know how tall she was, uh, but she was tiny. And somebody was once talking to her about uh, this uh, commentarial tradition, not actually from the Buddhist text, but from the commentaries which followed in later centuries, this idea that only a man could be a Buddha, or that to be a Buddha you had to be reborn as a man. And she lifted herself up to her full two feet <laughs> tall, and she said, I can do anything a man can do. <laughs> she was quite spunky. And it was beautiful because her, her recognition of the power of endeavor and energy and motivation was of course not limited to herself. This was the gift that she could give to others who came to her. She knew absolutely that you could do it. Because you can do it. In fact, I went to her in 1974, when I was leaving India for, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, I was quite convinced that I was going to spend the entire rest of my life in India. So in 1974, when I was ready to come back for the briefest of interludes, I went to her in Calcutta to say goodbye. And I said, well, I'm going back for a short little time to you know, get my house together and get some money together and then I'll be back. And she looked at me and she said, well, when you go to America, you'll be teaching meditation with Joseph. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. <laughs> and I said, no, I won't. <laughs> For a number of reasons, partly because I still felt myself to be very much a student and I was determined that I was going to spend the entire rest of my life in India, partly because I had certain ideas of uh, the incredible accomplishments of my own teachers, which I think was true. Um, and I just kept saying, no, I'm not. I can't do that. And finally, she looked at me and she said, you know, you can do anything you want to do. It's only your thinking that you can't do it that's stopping you. And it was a great blessing as she sent me off, you know, back to America. And that was 21 years ago, so she was right. As Joseph mentioned in an earlier talk, he talked about this concept of a precious human birth. And that is the incredible variety of the conditions that need to come together for somebody to have a determining interest in a spiritual practice. All of those facets, all of those aspects of life coming together is a very rare and precious and extraordinary thing. And that coming together of, of those conditions is what allows us 
to go against the current of the world, not to remain satisfied with the answers or the promises that the world is holding before us as to true happiness. That turning away from the ready answers of the world, the superficiality of that and the heartlessness of that, the mechanical nature of that, turning away from that is the hardest part. Everything that follows from there is just a product of the steadiness of our effort. The hardest thing of all is that turning, is that movement away from being mired in the grasping and the lack of forgiveness and the competitiveness and the jealousies of the world. Not that they don't come in with us, but that first understanding that there is not where true happiness lies. That's not where true peace is. That's the most important moment. The rest is just a function of a very patient effort. And that's another way of saying that all of you, all of us, have done the hardest part already. We can have confidence in our ability to go forward from that point on. There's a woman named Aung San Suu Kyi who in fact is, as many of you know, actually the democratically elected leader of the country of Burma. She was just recently released from house arrest um, after six years, during which time she apparently did quite a bit of meditation practice. And this is a, a quotation from her in which she says, a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying. That is our capacity. The effort, the quality of endeavor, of not pulling back and not withholding, being resolute, being present, being wholehearted, is the single most important force in, in evolution, in our spiritual practice. This is from William James, who said, we measure ourselves by many standards, our strength and our intelligence, our wealth, and even our good luck are things which warm our heart and make us feel ourselves a match for life. But deeper than all such things and able to suffice unto itself without them is the sense of the amount of effort we can put forth. One who can make none is but a shadow one who can make much is a hero. The whole point of the Buddhist teaching actually is not at all about tradition, it's about insight, it's about realization, it's about recognition of the truth. It's a very living spirituality which tradition can support but it can never replace. It's about direct realization of the truth not about some kind of distant admiration of something that happened for the Buddha in a long ago time in a faraway place. 
And as I've often quoted, one of the great moments of my early practice was when one of my teachers said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. Because we can. That's the whole point. One of my very favorite passages in, in the Pali Canon, in the suttas, is the one in which the Buddha is saying, abandon that which is unwholesome or unskillful. That means all of that which leads to suffering for ourselves and for others. Abandon what is unskillful. You can abandon the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. But since it is possible, I say, abandon that which is unskillful. He went on to say, cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. And that, of course, is the very reason I have loved that passage so much. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. You can do it. Every one of us can do it. That is the nature of the mind. And that is so essential to, to the teaching and the practice of the Buddha. The teaching of effort is the teaching of personal empowerment. That we can do it. And the fact that nobody, it is taught, can hand us realization or enlightenment also means that nobody can take it away from us. It's what, no, it's what is known as a self-witnessed truth. And so it is not subject to the winds of change. This is from a 14th century Kashmiri mystic. It's a woman named Lalded, some call, sometimes called Lala, who said, I didn't trust it for a moment, but I drank it anyway, the wine of my own poetry. It gave me the daring to take hold of the darkness and tear it down and cut it into little pieces. We can have that kind of daring, each of us. Take hold of the darkness, cut it down, tear it into little pieces. We need to have this kind of consummate faith and trust in ourselves. Because that is the point of true stability, true understanding. Even if others should lose faith in us, it doesn't matter. Because we can have that refuge there's a story that I've always enjoyed from the time of the Buddha about a certain nun named Chitta who was very elderly when she entered the order of nuns and began her meditation practice. So much so that many of the other nuns and many of the monks would say to her, you know, you're really old. You should just take it easy. <laughs> just slow down, relax. Don't, 
don't really try to practice very much, you know, just have a nice little nun-like vacation <laughs> for this last period of your life. But she had tremendous motivation for understanding and freedom. And she thought, no, I really want to practice. And everybody consistently would tell her, you're too old, you know, just relax. And she'd say, no, I really want to practice. So said so that one day she, she decided to walk up this mountain. And she said to herself, well, at the end of this day, either the hindrances will have died or I'll have died, <laughs> but I'm going to practice. She walked up the mountain, meditated, and as these stories always end so happily, <laughs> she became fully enlightened. And then she walked down the mountain. And it said that the whole community kind of gathered around her and said, you look really good. What happened to you? <laughs> it's that inner fire. It's our inner determination that will carry us through not only inner obstacles, but the lack of faith or support from others. I think I'll close now and uh, continue with the other two next week. I'll close with this uh, poem from Ryokan who said, if you speak delusion, everything becomes delusion. If you speak the truth, everything becomes the truth. Followers of Buddha's way, why do you so earnestly seek the truth in distant places? Look for delusion and truth in the bottom of your own hearts. So let's sit together for a few moments. This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.